Hi, writers. This is Jim Thayer. I'd like to talk in this episode about a critical difference between a scene and a summary. You'll recall the writing teacher and novelist Jack Bickham's uh, sentence about the definition of a scene. It's maybe the best single sentence I've ever read regarding how to write a novel. This is Jack Bickham defining a scene. It's a segment of story action written moment by moment without summary presented on stage in the story now. Bickham here is defining a scene. He says it's moment by moment without summary. It could be played out on a stage. There is a difference between a summary and a scene. The story should be told chiefly in scenes rather than in summary. And by summary, I mean things like this. This is a summary. My mother and father lived on Elm Street and were happy for many years until the truck ran over my father's leg. He was in the hospital for two months, but never fully recovered. I had to get a job at the factory. Do you see how that reads like an after-action report? You're not really seeing things happen. You're reading an after-action summary. This is, here is the same uh, action in real time, moment by moment, as Jack Bickham says. It would be told this way. This isn't a whole scene. It's part of a scene. But listen how you can see it in front of your eyes. Joe Smith buttoned his coat and made his way down the sidewalk. He glanced over his shoulder into the wind and pulled the coat's belt tighter. His foot missed the curb, and he tumbled forward onto the asphalt. He tried to scramble away, but a pickup's fender clipped his shoulder, and Smith's leg fell under the wheel, snapping his leg, sounding like a gunshot. This version, a scene, creates images for the reader to go along with. It could be acted out on a stage. It's live, moment by moment. We are talking about the critical difference between a summary and a scene. Here is a famous summary from Jane Austen's Sense and Sensibility. I don't have the gall to criticize that wonderful novel, but fashions in fiction change. This is a summary, the first several sentences of Sense and Sensibility. The family of Dashwood had long been settled in Sussex. Their estate was large, and their residence was at Norland Park, in the center of their property, where for many generations they had lived in so much respectable a manner as to engage the general good opinion of their surrounding acquaintance. The late owner of this estate was a single man who lived to a very advanced age, and who for many years of his life had a constant companion and housekeeper in his sister. That's Jane Austen's Sense and Sensibility. Do you see how it's, it's a history? It's not happening in front of our eyes, but rather she is documenting uh, the family of Dashwood. It's a summary. Here is, by comparison, the first few sentences of Charles Fraser's wonderful novel, Cold Mountain. At the first gesture of morning, flies began stirring. Inman's eyes and the long wound at his neck drew them, and the sound of their wings and the touch of their feet were soon more potent than a yard full of roosters in rousing a man to wake. So he came to yet one more day at the hospital ward.
He flapped the flies away with his hands and looked across the foot of the bed to an open, triple-hung window. See where that's playing out moment by moment in front of the reader? We can see it happening. It's happening in real time right in front of us. Here's another example of how to write a scene. This is uh, from Tom Wolfe's novel, I Am Charlotte Simmons, and these are the first few sentences of the novel. Notice how you can see it happening. It happens moment by moment in front of us. Every time the men's room door opened, the amped-up onslaught of Swarm, the band banging out the concept in the theater overhead, came rushing in, ricocheting off all the mirrors and ceramic surfaces until it seemed twice as loud. But then an air hinge would close the door and Swarm would vanish, and you could once again hear students drunk on youth and beer being funny or at least loud as they stood before the urinals. Two of them were finding it amusing to move their hands back and forth in front of the electric eye to make the urinals keep flushing. Anyway, <laughs> this is one party I'm glad I wasn't invited to. But see how you can see that right in front of you? Tom Wolfe knows how to write, of course. Just a terrific writer. I think I've read everything he's ever written. And he creates this weird scene with these two drunken college kids right for us to watch. Summaries are sometimes useful when we have a lot of information to get across. But almost all of our novels should be scenes, not summaries. If you use a summary, here are two pretty good rules. One, make sure the summary is important. Two, make it short. I was asked a question in a nice email about point of view. I'll mention it briefly right now, and but we'll return to it. The point of view in a scene. Uh, in brief, the point of view is simply which character's eyes are witnessing the events. Novelist Saul, si Saul Stein says, we know that scenes are most effective when the point of view is from the character most affected by what happens in the scene. That's Saul Stein. Usually a scene should have only one point of view. Here's another topic, the location of a scene. A scene typically takes place in one location. It doesn't jump from one place to another. A single locale is one of the clearest and best demarcations of a scene. The reader knows that the scene is continuing because you're still still in the same place. Often a scene ends when the character leaves the location. For example, here's the last sentence of chapter 3 of Charles Fraser's Cold Mountain, quote, he took up his packs and set off again walking. Here, uh, the protagonist, Inman, has just left the area the reader's watching. Here's the last sentence of uh, chapter 8, same novel, the blue one, the brighter one is Venus, Ada said, and she and Ruby turned up the road to Black Cove. Here's uh, Bernard Cornwell's uh, from Sharp's Trafalgar, the end of the third scene. Sharp waited five minutes, then followed. Here's the uh, 
last line of chapter 3 in uh, Frederick Forsyth's The Day of the Jackal. He lunched off a large cold collation of lakeside restaurant in the Tivoli Gardens and caught the 315 plane to Brussels. The character's leaving the scene. Here's uh, The Mists of Avalon by Marion Zimmer. This is the last line of chapter 6. Then she went quietly down the stairs to await the news she knew would come. The character's gone down the stairs. She's left the area. The reader's watching. Here is something about the last lines of your scene. What should the last few sentences of a scene do? It should make the reader want to read the next scene, of course. You'd think that this last sentence of a scene would answer a plot question. Not so. Usually, the last line should raise a question. Questions need answers. The reader will want to read further to find the answers. Do it, uh, do it by leaving things unsettled rather than settled. The reader will want to learn how things settled out. And so we'll continue reading on to the next scene. So how do we do this? How do we get the reader to continue reading? In writing a scene, there is the rue rule. Rue, R-U-E. And that's short for resist the urge to explain. There's a jingle that's been used by a musical theater and comedians for a hundred years. It's shaving a haircut, two bits. I'm old enough to know what that is. It has a tune, shave and a haircut, two bits. Try singing shave and a haircut, two, leaving off bits. It's almost impossible to do that. Uh, the brain demands that the jingle be finished. The mind wants completion to go, to go forward to the payoff. Here's another example. Uh, the most famous four notes in classical music, the opening notes of Beethoven's Symphony No. 5 in C minor. There are three short G notes, then one long E note. Da-da-da-da. Well, I'm a writer, not a singer. But you know what I mean. Try humming only the first three notes. Da-da-da. It can hardly be done. The brain demands the final note. New writers often want to make a scene a full package with a beginning, middle, and end, with everything complete at the end of the scene. Sometimes it's difficult for a new writer to leave the scene without tying up loose ends. We're tidy. We like to close the circle. But a successful scene most often should end on a note of tension because the writer has left things open, unexplained. The R-U-E rule. The ending of a scene asks a question that foreshadows a future event. Things are left dangling at the end, such as shaving a haircut to... Here's an example of the right way and the wrong way to end a scene. John stirred the spaghetti sauce, then turned the knob on the stove down a notch. He glanced out the side door window. He put down the spoon, wiped his hands on a towel, and stepped toward the door, staring, then inhaling quickly. You see something? Jessica asked. John leaned closer to the window. Oh, my Lord, the Smith's house is on fire. End of scene. It ends on a note of tension. Lots of questions have been raised. How did the fire start? Is anybody in the Smith house? But the main question is, 
what are John and Jessica going to do? Are they going to try to rescue someone? The reader can't put down the novel here at the end of this scene. There's too much at risk. Here's the wrong way to end the same scene. John stirred the spaghetti sauce, then turned the knob on the stove down a notch. He glanced out the side door window. He put down the spoon, wiped his hands on a towel, and stepped toward the door, staring, then inhaling quickly. You see something? Jessica asked. John leaned closer to the window. Oh, my Lord, the Smith's house is on fire. You sure? You, you see some smoke? Right there, coming from the top window. The Smiths are in Hawaii. <laughs> the Smiths are in Hawaii. Jessica crossed to the phone. I'll call the fire department. This ending is more complete. Fewer questions are raised at the end. The reader learns the Smiths are safe. John and Jessica have called the fire department. Things have been handled. And so there's less reason to read the next chapter. Here are some examples from successful scene endings from the experts. Each line uh, that I'll read is the last line of a scene, and each line raises a question. Here's uh, Tom Wolfe's Bonfire of the Vanities. This is the end of chapter 17. He says he was with Henry Lamb when he was hit by the car. He took him to the hospital. He can give you a description of the driver. He wants to make a deal. What questions asked here? What's the deal he wants to make? Reader has to keep reading. Here's uh, Patricia Cornwell's The Body Farm, the end of chapter 2. Quote, Come on down to the unit, he said, and let's see what this is about. What's the question? What's this about? I want to read farther into the next scene. Here's the last line of the first chapter of Annie Prolux's The Shipping News. A spinning coin, still balanced on its rim, may fall in either direction. The question? Which way will it fall? What's in store for the character? Here's Mary Higgins Clark. Let me call you sweetheart. This is the last line of chapter 3. I bet they have a present for me. Question. Do they have a present? What's the present? And here's the last line of chapter 5 of Colleen McCullough's The Thornbirds. That's another novel I just hated to see end. I hated to leave Australia and leave those people behind when... The novel ended. Here's the last line of chapter 5. One day, Maggie, but not soon, I think, so don't worry. I have a feeling I'm going to be stuck in Gilly for a long, long time, answered the priest, his eyes bitter. What does she ask here? Will he be stuck in Gilly a long time? What's he going to do to escape? These are scene endings from the experts who know how to keep us readers reading. We want to see what happens in the next chapter. We can't put the book down now. Dialogue is a particularly effective way to leave questions unanswered at the end of a scene. The trick is to yank the reader away from the conversation before it is wrapped up. If your character says something that causes another, char uh, another character to gasp, end the scene at that instant. You don't need to let the other character respond and then include the lesson learned or anything else that brings a scene to a tidy ending. In real life, when someone makes a startling or shocking statement and no one says anything, the words are suspended in the air and are much more powerful than when other people begin to fill in the emptiness with their own words or reactions. Rita Mae Brown does this exceptionally well in her novel Venus Envy about a woman, Fraser, who discovers she has cancer. 
she decides to tell her friends and her family her secret, that she's gay. After she does so, she finds out that the cancer diagnosis was wrong. She's healthy. Now she has to live with the problems caused when she came out. We don't need to know the events of each chapter to know how this dialogue creates tension at the very ends of these scenes. Of these scenes. Libby is Fraser's mother. Quote, I can see I'm getting nowhere with you. You won't be content until you ruin this family. Why? So you can be queer. Libby was ripped. The only people who are queer are the people who don't love anybody. That means you, Mama. You are incapable of love. Frazier slammed down the phone so hard she scared the cat. Isn't that a great ending to a scene? I have to read farther. Here's another ending to another scene, same novel. Maybe every human being has only one question to answer. Carter, listening intently, interrupted, What's that? Do you want to live or do you want to die? Here's another scene, Envy. Uh, Another scene from the same book, Venus Envy. As Kimberly left, Sarah and Fraser sat for a moment. Sarah, I get the feeling people would have preferred that I died. It would be better than having to face things. Or, Or maybe saying that they want me dead is too strong. Maybe they just want me to get a pink slip, you know, so I can be excused from life. Notice how Rita Mae Brown doesn't continue the scene to show us the other characters' responses. She just leaves us with the startling line of dialogue. We've got to continue reading the next scene to discover what the response is, what happened next. Not every scene in your novel needs to end with a question, but most should. Propel your readers forward at the end of your scenes, following the rue, R-U-E rule. Shave in a haircut, two, and then end your scene. We have been talking about scenes. Let's, let's mention now uh, the rhythmic placement of scenes. Life occurs in cycles, up then down, fast then snow, joy then sadness, the sun then the moon. Your novel should also have cycles. Deliberate changes of pace, of mood, of setting, and of tone. By the end of a chapter or a scene, the reader should want... The writers should have made them want relief from whatever they have just experienced in the novel. A scene of treachery should be followed uh, perhaps with a scene of comfort. A scene of passion should be followed by something far less. A comic scene should be followed by one with more tension. A scene with a lot of dialogue might be followed by one featuring the narrator's voice. A scene with one point of view can some, sometimes be followed by someone else's point of view. A novel often works best when a scene in one location is followed by a scene in a different location. There should be contrast on many fronts as the reader goes from scene to scene. The novelist Raymond Obstrelt says, Effective scene placement follows some basic, the same basic rules as visual arts. And he says, putting contrasting elements next to each other tends to emphasize each work. Putting similar elements next to each other tends to blend them together. Therefore, try not to put similar scenes next to each other. That's Raymond Obstfeld. Here's an example uh, of the above. The rhythmic placement of a scene, the changing of locales and tones, leaving one scene with tension so the reader goes to the next 
to the rest of it. And this is from The Godfather. Some say The Godfather's the great American novel. Uh, I don't think I've ever read a better novel. The gangster Salazzo, who is known as the Turk, wants to move his heroin operation into New York and has been rebuffed by the godfather, Don Corleone, and so has kidnapped Corleone's lawyer and consigliore, Tom Hagen, to give Hagen a proposal to take back to the family, uh, or what remains of the family. Salazzo has just had the godfather uh, killed, or so Salazzo thinks. Hagen has been driven to a neighborhood Hagen doesn't recognize. Five men he doesn't know lead him into a basement and sit him on a straight-back kitchen chair to face Salazzo. Hagen is shaking uncontrollably. Here's the ending paragraph to chapter 3, followed by the first several sentences of chapter 4. Salazzo nodded gravely. Fine, he said. I don't like bloodshed. I'm a businessman, and blood costs too much money. At that moment, the phone rang, and one of the men sitting behind Hagen went to answer it. He listened, and then said curtly, Okay, I'll tell him. He hung up the phone, went to Salazzo's side, and whispered in the Turk's ear. Hagen saw Salazzo's face go pale, his eyes glitter with rage. He himself felt a thrill of fear. Salazzo was looking at him speculatively, and suddenly Hagen knew that he was no longer going to be set free, that something had happened that might mean his death. Salazzo said, The old man is still alive. Five bullets in his Sicilian hide, and he's still alive. He gave a fatalistic shrug. Bad luck, he said to Hagen. Bad luck for me. Bad luck for you. That's the end of chapter 3. Here's the beginning of chapter 4. When Michael Corleone arrived at his father's house in Long Beach, he found the narrow entrance mouth of the small of the mall blocked off with a link chain. The mall itself was bright with the floodlights of all eight houses outlining at least ten cars parked along the curving cement walk. Two men he didn't know were leaning against the chain. One of them asked in a Brooklyn accent, Who are you? He told them. Another man came out of the nearest house and peered at his face. That's the Don's kid, he said. I'll bring him inside. Mike followed this man to his father's house, where two men at the door let him and his escort pass inside. What's changed in the space between these two scenes? Everything. The location, an unknown basement in an unknown neighborhood, changes to a compound and house where the reader has been before. The level of tension has changed. Hagen fears immediate death at the end of chapter 3, but at the beginning of chapter 4, Michael is entering the only place in the world where he is now safe, his father's house. So fear has changed to comfort. The reader can take a breath. The time has changed. Chapter 4 occurs later in the evening, by several hours. The point of view has changed. Hagen's point of view changes to Michael's. All the characters, Hagen, the Turk, his henchmen, changed to Michael and the Don's family. This rhythmic placing of scenes allows the use of contrasts that will reinforce the effect of every scene when different scenes are placed next to each other. We've come to the end of this podcast. Next time we're going to talk about the single best technique for sentence-to-sentence writing. And that's the difference between showing 
and telling. Hope you'll join me next time. This is Jim Thayer, and until then, keep tapping those keys.